Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape of this election. We have an outstanding panel today. Independent political strategist and Lincoln Project co-founder and our captain on this ship, Reed Galen. Good morning, Reed. Hey, Ron. Lincoln Project Executive Director and a former director at the National Security Council, Sarah Lenti. Thanks for being on again, Sarah. Thanks, Ron. And we have a special guest today who is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law, a former law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, and a former special assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia, Oren Kerr. Oren, it is so great to have you with us today. Great to be here, Ron. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the recent passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Donald Trump refusing to commit to a peaceful transfer of power after the November election. Last Friday, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died due to complications from metastatic pancreatic cancer. Born in 1933 in Brooklyn, Ginsburg was one of nine female students in her class of over 500 at Harvard Law School, and she became the first female editor of the Harvard Law Review. She graduated first in her class after she transferred to Columbia Law School and later became the first woman to earn a tenured faculty post at Columbia. Ginsburg played a central role in reshaping American society as the director of the Women's Rights Project of the American Civil Liberties Union. She argued landmark cases on gender equality and sex-based discrimination before the United States Supreme Court and successfully challenged laws that limited opportunities for both men and women. In 1980, she was named to the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit by President Jimmy Carter. In 1993, President Bill Clinton appointed her to the Supreme Court. She famously wrote the opinion for the court in the case United States versus Virginia, which struck down the male-only admission policy of the Virginia Military Institute. Over time, Ginsburg became known for her dissents, perhaps most famously her defense of voting rights in a 2013 case, and was given the moniker the Notorious RBG, which she embraced. So let's start with her career as an advocate. Justice Ginsburg played a major role in shaping the law around gender equality and sex-based discrimination, even before she was named to the court. So, Oren, can you help us understand how her work impacted women's lives? Yeah, so before Ruth Bader Ginsburg's advocacy, the Constitution was not understood to protect women as a protected class. It was it was not understood, it was not thought to enforce rules on the equality of, of men and women as a matter of law. And Justice Ginsburg led uh, a strategy to change that, to change justice's attitudes. And, and and therefore created in constitutional law the understanding that, that in fact, the 14th Amendment does do that, that, that the Constitution guarantees equality and can't draw arbitrary distinctions between what men can do and what women can do based on purely on their sex. And, and that, that was just a very significant legal change, basically in preventing laws that are based on stereotypes about what the roles of men are and the roles of women are, uh, those Laws had been on the books and, and are no longer today. Can you also walk us through the role that Justice Ginsburg played on the Supreme Court and, and how she impacted the court as a whole? So Justice Ginsburg was uh, a, a member of the court's left center left wing or left wing, depending on how you look at it. I mean, uh, unfortunately, our Supreme Court for the last 20 or 30 years has been divided ideologically into relatively predictable camps, sort of the right camp and the left camp. Uh, uh, with usually a swing vote or maybe two swing votes in the, in the center. Uh, and Justice Ginsburg was one of the members of the liberal side of the court, one of, and certainly late in her career, really one of the leaders of the left side of the court. So uh, when there were ideologically divided cases, there were some justices that were reliably on one side and the other, and Justice Ginsburg would tend to be uh, you know, reliably on the, on, the, on the liberal side of the court. So I also want to talk a bit about the friendship that Justice Ginsburg had with the late Justice Antonin Scalia. While Justice Ginsburg was among the more liberal members of the court, Justice Scalia was among the more conservative, and they often disagreed about the law. 
and argued in their writing, but still remain close friends. Sarah, what can we learn from their relationship during these hyperpartisan times? That it's, it comes down to respect, uh, respect for others' opinions, for being able to listen and communicate and share ideas without, with just, you know, it's, it's basic human respect and it's okay to have differing opinions and it's okay to verbalize those, but you don't fight about it and you discuss it. And I think there was a real civility in their relationship and that, and that, that, that says, says volumes about the, the, the two of them. I'm wondering if we have any other examples either on the court or, you know, given the trajectory of Supreme Court nominations and seats as they're being filled now, Oren, do you think we'll see another relationship like that begin to form? I do. I don't think relations like that are actually as rare as people um, suggest. What what makes the Ginsburg or what made the Ginsburg-Scalia friendship so notable is that um, they were public about it. They liked to talk about it. They hung out together in a, in a way that people knew of. Um, I mean, I, I think the Supreme Court is ultimately, it's a workplace, right? There are sort of nine people that are, you know, it's sort of a nine partner law firm and they're, they're working together on a lot of cases and they're agreeing in the great majority of cases uh, or, or many, many, many cases they're agreeing on. It's not that they're constant ideological enemies. And, and I think it's actually more common than people might know, especially among judges, for judges to just have friendships with other members of the court that are their ideological opposites because opposites they're all people ultimately and and I think if anything the story of the Scalia Ginsburg friendship is about how fascinated the public is by the Scalia Ginsburg friendship sort of we as members of the public have have, have almost forgotten you can have friends who disagree with you on issues and it's 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 our public reaction that I think is the story here uh, even more than the friendship that they had. Yeah, and there was a, there seemed to be a true, not just friendship, but affection between them. I mean, they they truly enjoyed one another's company. Um, but, you know, and I think Oren is right that we forget that, you know, there are the landmark Supreme Court cases. And then there are, and Oren will have to correct me on the number, the dozens, hundreds, if not thousands of cases that are like 8190, <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> right? right? That don't right. get nearly as much attention. And, and I think, I think Oren's, you know, piece of that is right, which is, you know, you, we have lost the ability to have friends in too many instances that don't agree with us ideologically. I mean, the good news about living as far away from Washington, D.C. as I do, is that the friends I have, I don't ever talk about politics, with, <laughs> right? Unless they want to. Yeah. I never yeah. bring it up. Yeah. Um, and that's because they're my friends, not because, well, we worked, you know, I mean, that was the hard thing about D.C., as you all remember. You lived in D.C., you worked with your friends, you lived with your friends, you dated somebody, whoever it was. And so when any part of that chain broke down, it became really, really difficult. So it must be incredibly difficult now for folks that live back there because the the relationship that we did see between Ginsburg and Scalia is probably nearly impossible for a lot of folks back And let's there. be honest, I mean, having been a part of the Lincoln Project now for seven months— Nobody likes my pic- the pictures of my kids anymore. Any of my Republican friends, like it's just it's pathetic. I will always like pictures of your kids. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and the and the happy hour circuit uh, in DC is now completely shut down because of uh, COVID, and that's where a lot of the you know the mingling across party lines usually happens, and and so COVID's just sort of exacerbated that dynamic. Let's get into the politics of replacement now. Reed, Trump is expected to nominate a justice tomorrow, Mm -hmm. which is 38 days before election day. And the Washington Post reports that Republicans in the Senate are moving to secure a confirmation vote before November 3rd. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and the Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham have been criticized for their hypocrisy in trying to rush a confirmation hearing on Trump's nominee after stalling on an election year nomination in 2016. Can you sort of set the table for all of the political dynamics that are at play right now for us? I will try and do this as rapidly as I can. <laughs> um, so first and foremost, as, as Stuart Stevens, another one of our, our partners in crime at the Lincoln Project said, this is not a vote that's going to take place before election day. It's going to take place during an election. M- hundreds of thousands, of, if not millions of Americans have already voted or have ballots in hand in their homes. So this is going on during an active electoral process. I think that's that's one thing. Um, two, 
the fact that Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell are hypocrites should come as a surprise to no one. Um, absolutely no one. Uh, but the hypocrisy is rooted not in the fact that they said one thing and did another, because that's stock and trade for them in particular, but not per, not that you know foreign in politics. Um, but they're doing it simply because they can, because they have decided this is something we can do, so therefore we're going to do it. And it it breaks down to you know something that we've talked about where the, what the GOP has become, which is it is no longer rooted in principle or belief or philosophy. It is rooted in the retention of authority and power. Yeah, and that's what this is. And we should also remember that when and Oren will have much more to say on this than I will. That when we think about a lot of the what 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 McConnell specifically does on judges, it is because, and I think you see a lot of this too with like voter suppression is that they know that a lot of the positions they take are probably broadly unpopular. So therefore, despite all of their talk of originalist judges and jurists, they want people who are going to lock in the laws that they try and pass while they're in office. And so that's really what this is, which is it is, it is locking in you know, from a co-equal branch of government you know, a conservative viewpoint um, that may or may not jibe with the rest of the country. And now what you're seeing too is that they're taking literally anybody off the street that they can find who has a law degree, whether or not they've ever tried a case, whether or not they've ever been in a courtroom, which makes these people far more uh, p- political you know, in nature than, than, they, than judges would have ever been in the past. And then there's the last piece, which is uh, what you heard the president say, which is he wants a Supreme Court justice so that they, you know, they can you know, back up his win. Yeah. Um, in the election. Yeah. And we're going to get to that piece in the second yeah, half. So, here. I mean, so it, it, it sort of runs the gamut. I mean, we should be clear. This person is going to be nominated. And although there might be a, a fight, this person is likely to be uh, 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 sent to the court. They are likely to be the next Supreme Court justice. And so there's a part of me that says the process piece is sort of a foregone conclusion. Um, there might be those that disagree with me. And if there's a way to, you know, up in that process, I think that's fine. Um, but we should assume that it's going to go forward and say, okay, what does it mean now? Um, and so I think from our perspective, what we've seen, and I think you're seeing the Biden campaign do, and I think this is smart, is this is not about abortion necessarily, but about the Affordable Care Act. What does it mean if they're going to overturn pre-existing conditions? If we know that six and a half million Americans have already been sickened by COVID, um, does the insurance industry get to say, well, now the pre-existing conditions are over and you had COVID? Sorry. Or even you were exposed to COVID. Right. Yeah. Um, you were asymptomatic, right? But you had it. Therefore, you know, you're, you, you know it's going to cost X instead of Y or whatever it is. So, I mean, I think the implications for individual Americans are huge. So actually, let's let's dig into the process piece of this for just a moment, Oren. Can you talk about, and feel free to react to anything Reed just said, but can you talk about what the precedent is here? for when there's a vacancy in an election year and the nominees the president seems to be considering and how you think this is likely to move forward? Yeah. So the talk of precedent, I think, is tricky because we ever never really had something quite like this. Uh, and and um, you can point to um, uh, very little in the way of historical evidence for how to proceed, which is, I think, why so much of the attention is focused on the claims that uh, McConnell Republicans had the last time around, right? We're, this, the, the striking precedent here is four years ago when Justice Scalia died, but of course, much further out from the election. And so, you know, naturally the hypocrisy of having taken one position and then reversing it or trying to come up with a way to distinguish the earlier claim from four years ago um, is getting is getting a lot of attention. But, you know, I, on the other hand, I think we all realized that McConnell's claim four years ago was a pretext. It wasn't really about an election obviously about just the Senate has the power to confirm. And if they're not going to bring a person up for the vote, they have the votes to not to, to do that. And, and that's it, right? It's a power move, not a principle move. And I think everybody understood that. Uh, and despite the claims and, and so we're, we're, we're back four years later with what was sort of the, the nightmare scenario for how this was going to go um, from the Democratic side, which was, you know, it was widely known that Justice Ginsburg was ill and it was not clear if she was going to make it until the next election um, to possibly be replaced by uh, now now 
um, nominee Joe Biden. Uh, so so we, we kind of knew that this was, everyone knew this was a possibility and everyone knew that if it happened and if there was a vacancy, even even after the lame duck uh, or dur- during the lame duck window, you know, everyone knew, yeah, that this was going to be a battle. So so there's nothing unexpected in that sense about about what's happened. And we, we knew this was going to be the the moment that was going to expose this as the power move that that it is. Can you talk about the the nominees that he's considering and what they would mean for the court if they're confirmed? Yeah, the the most often mentioned nominee is Amy Coney Barrett, uh, a Seventh Circuit judge. Uh, and she is a former law professor at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, very bright, very conservative, uh, thought to be pretty much a guaranteed vote uh, to overturn Roe versus Wade. Uh, and what's striking about the possible Barrett nomination, to my mind, is that in, in, in past cases, it's always been the case, at least in the last 20 or 30 years, that every nominee is put forward as a centrist who has some leanings, right? So so the, the, the president side will say, here's John Roberts. He's a brilliant lawyer. Uh, yes, he's somewhat conservative. But what's important is he's, he's this mainstream, incredibly brilliant guy. Uh, nominees on both uh, uh, from the Democratic side and the Republican side have always made that claim. And, and Judge Barrett is extremely bright. I mean, she's very, very sharp. Um, but no one claims that she's a centrist. No one claims that she's a moderate. It's sort of, you know, we, we, the politics have shifted such that the case for her on the Republican side is she's about as conservative as you can get, or at least no one it could be, you know, no, no one is available. It's sort of not clear what it would mean to be more conservative than that, just in terms of how she's being sort of pitched on the Republican side. I mean, not, not that you, know, you can really typecast someone like that, but the, the political case for the Barrett nomination is explicitly based on her ideological orientation being uh, uh, one that would move the court to the right. And effectively, since you always need five votes to move the direction of the Supreme Court, uh, she would not be a swing vote. That's the the, the argument is that the, the swing vote becomes whichever Republican nominee is is most likely to be in the middle. And that's that's probably going to be Brett Kavanaugh, uh, maybe Neil Gorsuch in some cases. Uh, and if you're talking about a Supreme Court where Brett Kavanaugh is a, is the swing vote. You're talking about a very, very, very conservative Supreme Court. So that's a more conservative court than we've seen in many, many decades. And I would let me just also say that, you know, to on the conservative front with with Barrett, you know, it's it's like everything else in the Republican Party, starting with Trump now, which is that it's a base play. Like, I mean, there's the there's there's the Barrett option, and then um, there's the the judge from down in florida who's of cuban descent and i would i it would not surprise me if there's some discussion about well if we choose the floridian do we lock up the cuban vote but then if we don't choose barrett that the evangelicals are going to go nuts um but again we should understand that this is none of this is to reach out to anybody who isn't already sort of fully in the trump you know camp or i think I think it locks in voters like my parents who are pro-life voters. They've been disgusted with his actions and words of late. But with this new nominee, they are beside themselves with joy because it would mean six pro-life judges on the court. So they think he's a hero. He's not a hero. This is just time and place. Well, and Trump doesn't care. Again, I mean, he's... I mean, this is not a guy who goes through his life, as you've seen, with sort of conservative personal values. Um, and it turns out that a lot of the evangelicals that surround him don't have personal, right. <laughs> personal evangelical values either. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is just about that. And I think that, you know, what, what happens is, is that if, if they do, and I assume that there will be someone who will file suit, and Oren would know this better than I do, who will force the issue up to the, the high court, um, is that now you're talking about ripping apart the social fabric of the country, um, which is, again, something also that Trump has no problem doing. So we should understand that this is not a surprise, and it is not about the majority of the country. And in fact, it's about 36% of the country. And I think it also, you know, we, we've known forever that Republicans vote on the court, right? The Dem- Democrats don't typically, you know, that's not their narrative. So what 
Will we see a change? Are people going to be riled up? I, I'm looking for that. Yeah. So Reed, that's a good, I wanted to get to the politics of this because let's like, take a detour really quickly. Do, like, as Sarah mentioned, Republicans do typically vote on the court. It animates mm. them. It turns them out to vote. That has not historically been true on the left. Do we think that's going to be different this time? How do we think the politics of this is going to play out for the election? So let me, let me start with Sarah's folks yeah. first, yeah. which is there's a good chance that, that they were probably never going to vote for Joe Biden no matter what. Might have sat it out. Might have sat it out, but they were never going to be a Biden vote. So they, they're really half a vote for Trump, right? They were, they were going to get, they were going to find a reason ultimately probably to, to, to vote for Trump. Um, so you have to, we should, I, I don't want to make an assumption, but we can assume that a lot of the folks who consider themselves conservative one issue voters were already with Donald Trump. Like that's, they weren't like, well, I really, you know, we need to wait for a court opening to see how I feel about him, right? Like, that's not... I think my mom was almost there. She admitted to me that she had voted for Carter. And then when I mentioned that on LPTV, she was like, oh, I voted for McGovern too. I was like, okay, closet Democrat. So I honestly think she was <laughs> Voting close. for McGovern does not make you a closet Democrat. That makes you a, an out-of-the-closet socialist. <laughs> okay. But I think she could have been moved had this not happened. I don't know. It very well could have been. Um, and then on the, the Democratic side, I think that what you're seeing is now campaign contributions should not be indicative of electoral strength, but there has been a hell of a lot of money raised. And I know that we saw some survey data that came our way through various channels that showed uh, what the Trump campaign is seeing, which is that for women, I believe, under the age of 35, this is like a 70-30 issue. Like they are 70% against Trump on this. And so I think that if you can fire them up, um, even not like by like 5%, right? Not, I mean, it's a lot of people, it's a small percentage, then you could have a, a dramatic change in suburban places, you know, in Philly or all these, these swing states. And so I think that the energy is on the Democratic side. I think what they have to do that they have not tra traditionally been able to do is harness it and, and drive it forward to election day. There's been a lot of hypocrisy in Washington before we leave this topic. There's been a lot of hypocrisy in Washington since its founding, but this is one of the more brazen displays uh, that we can remember in recent times. Um, so I'd love for you to take a moment to talk about the motivation for Senate Republicans. Do they, and this is just, I want to put this open question on the table for, for all of you, but do they not care about going against their word or think their voters don't care, or is this a hail mary before potentially losing the majority in the White House? How how do you think they are reasoning through this? If they're reasoning through it at all, and Reed, why don't you kick us off, and then Orrin and Sarah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Sure. Um, I don't know that we've ever had fifty two or fifty three invertebrates in the United States Senate, but we have them now. Um, they are all a disgrace to their offices and to their oaths. Um, you know, it, you shouldn't be, no one listening to this should be surprised if they start to see a lot of video with these people taking the oath of office with Joe Biden administering it, right? Um, they, they have, you know, all of this stuff. I mean, the court piece is political. It's not constitutional. Um, the stuff that Trump said about the election and peaceful transfers of power, that's constitutional because it's, it's a, just a slap in the face to all of our traditions and norms and frankly, the law. Um, and so I think that if you go back to Ann Applebaum's piece in the Atlantic a few months ago about collaborators, they've all, they, whatever their path was, it all ended up in the same place. And it was always going to, um, for Lindsey Graham, you know, it's, I'm now that, you know, he's the chair of the judiciary committee. He gets to be in the spotlight. You know, he goes on Fox news and cries about how much money Jamie Harrison is racing, you know, Oh, too bad for you. Um, but he also wants to keep playing golf. Right. Um, so sometimes it's really, really sad what people will do. Um, for McConnell, it's about, you know, he, he, if he lost all his Senate seats that are up this year, except for his own, he'd be fine. This is just simply about his self-preservation for him. Um, and then you have others who, um, you know, as, as Mary Trump called it, it's, uh, it's, um, you know, in, uh, unforced helplessness or something like that, which is they have decided they're now hostages and therefore they, they are not, they are no longer responsible for what he does and therefore for what they do. Um, and that's, that must be a very strange world to inhabit. Um, and so I think that they all have, and then you have others, you know, like 
Rubio and Cruz who are already aiming for 24 who want to, you know, leave enough wiggle room open that they're not upsetting Trump voters um, or Donald Trump. Um, and it just shows their lack of any sort of moral compass. I mean, that's not, I mean, that doesn't surprise us in Cruz and, and, and Rubio is, is, I mean, to say he's a disappointment is, is, a, is an insult to like being disappointed on Christmas morning, right? Like it's just, he's just amazing with his Bible verses and everything else. Um, and so I think they've all come to their own reason. And I think it's going to cost a lot of them their, their jobs this fall. Rightfully so. Oren, what's your take? So it's hard for me to guess at exactly what different people are thinking. I, I would just flag that putting aside the promise 24 years ago when Justice Scalia died about, about whether to fill that seat. I mean, imagine the politics are flipped and Roe versus Wade is in the balance. And you've got a Democratic president and 53 Democratic senators that can confirm a liberal nominee that will guarantee Roe versus Wade for for the for the future and if they don't do that there's a decent chance Roe versus Wade is gone and imagine the pressures on those senators given the practical stakes of their decision and how many of them would say I don't care about Roe versus Wade I don't care about women's rights I care about principle um I don't know how many on the Democratic side would do that, but I suspect this is one of those situations where you need to have a lot of principles to fight that political reality that your decision has extraordinary practical stakes, given, unfortunately, the reality that the Supreme Court plays such an enormous role in settling major policy questions in in American politics. Um, That's an intense amount of pressure and and I'm not sure how the politics would go if it were flipped, but I don't think it's it's th- there's a principal part of this. But this is also just, wow, if there's any situation where the practical stakes are just exerting an incredibly intense force on 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 how the senators behave. This is this has got to be one of them. Yeah, that's fair. Sarah, what do you, what's your read? Well, I just I think I want to comment instead on um, the two centrist Republicans, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Senator Susan Collins of Maine. And Susan Collins has gone back and forth, but it seems like they're going to they're saying that they don't want this vote. Um, And, you know, they are I don't know where I mean, they know where they are in their own hearts on life and this and the other. But there's just this is just it's it's gross. It's like Reed was talking about the, the power and the authoritarianism this is just wrong and i think as two females that probably looked up to ruth uh, you know um justice ginsburg this is this is this is unacceptable and we can should just hold the vote let americans decide who the next president is and then let's decide and i, I always go back to the court is a conservative court even if biden biden gets to make the appointment it's still a conservative court speaking of power and the pursuit of it at all costs, it seems. Earlier this week, The Atlantic Magazine released a special preview of their November 2020 issue in which Barton Gelman asserted that regardless of the election outcome, Donald Trump will never concede. Gelman's fears seem likely after a Wednesday press conference in which Trump refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power if he loses the election in November. Trump expressed his concerns about ballots, furthering his false notion that mail-in voting is rife with fraud. Let's take a listen to what Trump said. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I and, understand that, but and, people are rioting. Do you commit oh, to making sure that there's a no, peaceful transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, the ballots are out of control. You know it, and you know who knows it better than anybody else. The Democrats know it better than anybody else. Go ahead. There is so much to get to on this story. Uh, But Sarah, I want to start with you because on Wednesday's podcast episode, we had a conversation with Alex Gibney and Camille Francois about Russia's attempts to cast doubt on the electoral process. Can you talk about what impact Trump's comments could have on election security and our national security? Russia, we know, is already interfering. We know that Russian news sources are influencing the Fox News outlets of the world we know this, and we're going to know a lot more about this in the coming weeks. Um, so I don't, I don't, 
I don't think what he's saying, it might just embolden them. Reed, can you talk about what would happen if Trump refuses to concede this election? And also, what do you make of his comments uh, just last night? So I want to take it a little bit from a different angle. And sure. Schmidt and I were talking this morning that there are two ways to approach this issue. One is from fear and worry. And the other one is from preparedness. And we should not be fearful or worry. We should be concerned, but we should not operate from a position of fear. And we should operate in a position that we have done everything we can do. And we believe that Joe Biden and everyone else is doing everything they can do to ensure that every voter who wants rid of this guy is going to show up. We are going to vote. He is going to lose. He is going to leave. That's the deal. He's not going to stick around. He does these things because he knows he's losing. It is a position of weakness. You don't go up and say, I think that this is all screwy and it's all against me and yada, 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 because you feel like you're in a strong electoral position. You do it because you know that the country, at least according to this morning's New York Times, only 36% of the country supports you. 36%. You know, and I bet the Venn diagram of those in Fox News viewers are probably, it's probably about a circle at this point. Um, so that means that everybody should do everything they can. If we saw in Virginia this week with people trying to stand in front of polling places, make those people famous. Um, I would say this is that the governors and mayors of these cities must do their jobs to protect the public good and their citizens from people who would disrupt the electoral process or threaten the livelihoods and property of others. And so I utilize, I use, I use the idea of we see these militias rolling around Louisville in the, in the wake of the Breonna Taylor stuff. Like Governor Bashir should be like, the state patrol is going to get out there and say, you guys go home. Go home or you're going to spend the night in jail and I'm going to take your gun from you. You know? Governor Brown in Oregon should say, you want to come in a white pickup truck to my city? I'm going to stop you at the bridge and turn you around. You don't get to come to my state. You don't get in. You don't get to come to Portland. They need to step up and do the things they need to do to demonstrate to their citizens and frankly, to the people who would attempt to disrupt that it will not be stood for. They must do that and they must do it visibly and they must do it now. Oren, I would really like to hear your reaction to the president's comments. For example, do have we ever had something like that uttered from the president of the United States? Do we have any precedent for this? And and what do you, if you zoom out and look at the norms that are being stress tested, let's let's put it gently, what do you make of this? And what can voters do to to ensure we we actually have a free and fair election? It's incredibly disturbing. Uh the precedents from this are from authoritarian regimes and 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 countries without functioning democratic systems. There's no. This is. I mean, it, it, step back. This is not just like tinkering at the edges. This is just the fundamental attack on perceptions of legitimacy of the presidential election. Um, this is about destabilizing an election and perceptions of how to count the election and how to go about naming the next president. And, and, and it's all just whatever helps Trump's personal interests. He, I mean, just, just think about this question. Have you ever heard an American politician basically treat an upcoming election as not about the public, but about himself? What his perception about, imagine this breaks down into complete, social violence, people rioting in the streets. I think all of our reaction would be like, that would just be absolutely horrible. And we can all imagine Trump's reaction being, this could be awesome as long as it helps Trump. Like that's that's only his interest. It is absolutely shocking and incredibly disturbing. And I, I, what I would only recommend is um, be ready for that um, and be ready. There's sort of, as the warning signs get clearer, for what Trump plans to do. I think it's it's critical. I think a lot of what he's doing is testing the waters and trying to see what will cause a strong reaction against what he's doing and make sure that strong reaction is 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 lodged 
um, and, and that, that people don't just let this happen. So I have a follow-up for you on that because I'm wondering how it is that this issue has become such a partisan issue when really we're not talking about partisan politics at all, right? I mean, this, as a conservative, how do you how do you reconcile the way the president has not been held to account by both parties for for these kinds of reckless comments when he is supposedly representing the conservative party i mean how did we get here and 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 what do you make of that i think there's a gradual process of those who object to what trump is saying becoming quieter and quieter within his own party as he takes over you know, year by year by year and makes any dissent extremely dangerous for anyone on his side from the perspective of the future viability of any politician on that side. So you've got a lot of people rolling their eyes and just saying like, well, that would be, you know, kind of banana republic. Like we're not, that's not the way we do things, but they're not going to say anything. And, and once, well, yeah, because they don't want the, they don't want the mean nickname or the tweet. Yeah, well, and, and they don't want their political careers to end. And one, once, once you've taken the view of I'm just going to shut up as all this stuff goes haywire, where do you then step in and say, okay, I've shut up about all these things that are incredibly disturbing before, but this is the one I will speak out on. It's easy to just stay quiet. And so it's just over time that that natural democratic you know, in- instinct of I'm going to object now, this is outrageous, just gets lost. And, and I'll say this, if you look at this morning's reactions, um, McConnell you know, leaves the, leaves the door open. He says the winner of November 3rd, right. But doesn't indicate what legitimacy that means. Yes. Yeah. I just saw like November 3rd is doing an awful lot of lifting, an awful lot of lifting. Yeah. Um, and the winner is too. Right. Um, I just saw Rob Portman, both sides should commit to this. I mean, I've known Rob Portman since I was in my twenties and I don't know that I could be more disappointed in someone than I am in him. And I say that yeah. on this podcast, yeah. knowing that everyone that I've worked with in Bushland for 20 years, yeah. where, of which he was a big part, yeah. will hear it. I mean, and I think that what you're going to see from us, you know, spoil alert, is we're going to make a lot of these guys famous yeah. and we're going to put them on the spot. And we're going to say, Senator Portman, where are you going to be on this? Not both sides. Not both are sides. Are you for the Constitution and the Republic or are you for this? Right. Make your choice. And my guess is they're going to make the wrong choice. Gelman also wrote in that article that the Republican Party and the state and national at the state and national levels were discussing contingency plans to bypass election results and appoint local electors in battleground states where Republicans hold a legislative majority. Sarah, you have previously worked for the RSLC, which is the Republican State Leadership Committee as their policy advisor, I believe. On the C4 for 11 years. Okay. So you know Republican state legislatures in and out. What is the likelihood of something like that happening? And what would the impact be on those legislators? I want to say something first, please. And before I go into that, so I'd been with the RSLC for 11 years, was brought in under Gillespie and a guy named Chris Janikowski. Governor Ed Gillespie. Mm -hmm. Not not governor, um, but Ed Gillespie, but he was former RNC. He didn't make governor. He tried. He tried. Oh, that's right. Virginia. But um, so- kept losing. Because MS-13 didn't attack people in Fairfax That's County. Right. And I believed in the RSLC. Um, I, did, I ran their policy shop, their C4. And it was about conservative policy principles at the state level. And, you know, you know, th- you know th- you're building the, uh, the field for the up-and-coming attorney generals and governors, all that. Your you're building your bench. Um, I will say this. When I had the opportunity to come on to the Lincoln Project as an advisor or a consultant, Back in February, I went to the the new president and said, I have this opportunity. And he said, you have to choose. And I said, why do I have to choose? I, I'm still a Republican. Why can't I be a Republican? He's like, you can't be a Republican against Trump. So I, I was, after 11 years, let go. Um, and well, I tend to agree with your erstwhile well, boss. There's, there's, there's some truth in that. <laughs> I mean, okay, okay, fine. But yeah. just, I mean, that's, that was a long relationship. Sure. And yeah. I believed in that group. And what I'm reading now does not surprise me. It's very concerning. So we know that Republicans control legislatures in six battleground states. They are Arizona, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Okay. And what they're doing right now, the Trump campaign apparently has been working with state legis- with those battleground state legislators 
where they have the majority. And what they're saying is that they're going to say, they're going to say that there's rampant fraud. And then he, Trump will ask the state legislators to set aside the popular vote and then to choose a slate of electors directly, right? And then he will have them count. They will then be the, they will then be the ones responsible for placing the vote. So this is, this is serious. This is a big deal. But I mean, this is, so this is what I, I, I was talking a few weeks ago to a, a very, very senior elections attorney. And even they, who have been through so many of these things, did not, did not know whether or not it's been enumerated, whether or not legislatures are able to do this in their, on, on their own accord, or whether or not a governor must sign whatever, if it's a piece of legislation. Okay. So two, two of these uh, battleground states, Arizona and Florida, have Republican governors. Right. So, well, that's a different ballgame. Yeah, right. um, but in Michigan right. or Wisconsin, where right. they don't, um, you know, if the if the Wisconsin legislature passes these bills, you know, then you know, I mean, I assume they have to be a bill. I don't, I don't even know I, how it works. I don't know. Yeah. But that, but you see, here's right. the thing, though, and 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 this is really the point: is like if this is where we are, like the ball, like like rule books out the window, right, right, <laughs> right, like right. we're in a the whole, rule book. You're, you're we exactly have, we right. have run out of road at that point, and yes. so like at that point, it's just like how do you, you know, we've chunked the steering wheel out the window, as Robert O'Keefe would like to say. And we're going 90 miles an hour, hoping to God we don't run off the cliff. Yeah. And I want to say I have many friends at the RSLC and I think they're, I think that they're wonderful people and doing great work, but I would just caution people at that committee. Think about what you're doing. We are a democracy. Yeah. Yeah. And to Reed's point, if the United States Senate, if Republicans in the most deliberative body in the world, allegedly cannot stand up to the leader of their own party, then it's hard to imagine how Republican state legislators who have far less clout, far less leverage are going to be able to stand up to a president. When and there's then, look, then we're Argentina, right? Right. Like yeah. we'll be a democracy and people will vote, but it won't matter. This is depressing. Yeah. Um, yeah well, don't be depressed. <laughs> be energized. Yeah. I mean, the good news is, is that in a country of 330 million Americans, yeah. about 260 million of them don't want anything to do with this guy. Fair. <laughs> yes. So, like, yeah. go out and do your part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would just add that the the concerns here also go to the politicalization of the courts, an assumption that Republican-nominated judges are going to deliver for Trump um, no matter what. And and this will, if if this all comes to pass, it'll be a, a big and incredibly important test case to make sure that these judges are are not doing that, which unfortunately the Supreme Court I think failed in Bush versus Gore twenty years ago. Um, so hopefully, hopefully we'll see a lot better this time around. But it's it's a big part of it. Do you think this is one of those cases where the assumption of a judge being conservative does not necessarily align with conservative jurisprudence? Well, I think we saw in Bush versus Gore that Republican nominated judges who sort of identified as Republicans were. We're, we're not following their jurisprudential commitments necessarily, but weighing in on a side that sure seemed to be influenced by who they were interested in seeing be the next president. So it's, it's, this, this is going to be a, a challenge not only in the legislatures, but a, a challenge for judges too. Yeah, and I think, you know, to, to broaden out on Oren's point a little bit, we get to these places when the functioning part of the democratic system is is breaking down right healthy democracies don't deal with this um because the the elections are not who do i dislike least it's who do i believe represents me more yeah um and those are two different things those are two different things and we haven't had an election like that i mean in we, a while. it's been a while and most yeah. and look you know most whether or not it's congressional districts legislative districts you know most people don't get a choice they're they're told like this is your choice right right, right. it's an 82 percent republican district you're going to get freaking louis gohmert right right sorry yeah <laughs> you know sorry you live in texarkana you're screwed yeah right because yeah. that nut yeah. is your congressperson yeah um and so i think that you know bush v gore i look i spent five weeks in florida during the recount and it was it was bananas right court hearings and marching up and down gun club road and you know palm beach county and you know federal courts in Atlanta and all these other things. I mean, it was, it was a hell of an operation to be sure to see on both sides, what, yeah. what both sides were able to mobilize. 
But what we're talking about now is like nobody's written the script for it. Right. There isn't. One. Yeah, we're in uncharted territory. Right. Very- but again, the way to get back to charted territory is to get the guy out of office yeah. and to show he's so overwhelmingly disliked and unwanted yeah. as, the, as the president um, that he ultimately just says, I don't want anything to do with you people. You don't deserve me. I've given up billions to be president, blah, 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 blah. So vote. <sighs> Go vote. Vote yeah, like your vote. rights depend on it. Vote like well, the Republic depends on it. Because they do. Because they do. Now that we are up to speed on the biggest news this week, I want to turn to the week ahead. So as we go into one of the final weeks here, Reed, what are you watching? Uh, well, obviously, Tuesday night will be the first debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And I think much like um, Luke Skywalker had to face Darth Vader, um, Joe Biden has to face Darth, you know, uh, uh, I usually say it. Joe Biden has to face Donald Trump. And he must take Trump to task directly and to his face for his failures as a president, starting with COVID, uh, whether or not it's bounties on American soldiers, uh, whether or not it's his disdain for the American process, political process. Mm -hmm. Um, He must take him to task for all of those things. Trump will have no answer. Trump will be, you know, a a whirling dervish of bullshit and distraction. Yeah. I mean, that's what he will be Yeah, um, because he has nothing else. And so, you know, what we're going to do at the Lincoln Project is ensure that he and his people understand not only his shortcomings, but all of their own shortcomings as well. Because I can only imagine as they get to Bedminster later today, probably, I think that's where they're going to do quote unquote debate prep. Oh my gosh. Um, that, you know, he, you can't, he's, he is, I called him this yesterday. He's an amnesiac like rodent, right? He doesn't remember anything and he's just always skittering around. And so trying to keep him on task as far as what he needs to do is an impossibility. Because, and here's the other part. He doesn't believe any of them know how to do this better than he does. Right. So, you know, we're going to, you know, poke that adrenal gland in Donald Trump to keep him all fired up. And we, we should expect the absolute unexpected from him next week. Yeah. Oren, what are you watching? I'll be watching uh, Trump's nomination to the Supreme Court to replace Justice Ginsburg. And it'll be uh, an anticlimactic uh, moment because normally when the president names a nominee, we then start asking, will this person be confirmed? And this time we <laughs> we know without knowing who the nominee is that the answer is going to be yes, but I'll be watching it anyway. Sarah, what's your story? So obviously I'll be watching all of that, but this Brianna Taylor debacle in Kentucky is in Louisville is yeah. really concerning. And it just it, it it just cuts at the racial strife that we're in at this moment right now, and it's it's bad. I mean, they're under curfew tonight. There were two police shot last evening. I mean, it's they're in it. This is a this is really tricky, and it's it's dangerous, and it's um it 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 speaks to where we're at as a nation right now. And I I, I would say this just to echo what Sarah just said. Yeah. Somebody asked me yesterday. If you look back after Donald Trump loses, if you look back at what what was the moment that he lost, my guess would be that in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's death, Trump's words and deeds were so repellent to so many Americans, regardless of race, color, creed, religion, that they had they had turned him off. That it didn't, you know, there were always going to be some people who would come home, but there was a lot of Americans who just said, I want nothing to do with this. Yeah. And he's only, he's only doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on it since yeah. then. Yeah. And, and as Mike Madrid has mentioned in a couple of other episodes, this, is, this has a lot to do with how the electoral map has flattened and, mm-hmm. and stratified sure. the race because what has been working uh, for Trump with that message in the Rust Belt has been backfiring against him in the Sun Belt. And, um, well, and it doesn't appear, I mean, if you look at the, re- the surveys out this week, Minnesota has come back to Biden. Wisconsin mm-hmm. has come back to Biden. Mm-hmm. Ohio is a dogfight mm-hmm. for Trump. Pennsylvania is solid for Biden right now. Of course, nothing is a done deal. And Michigan appears to still be off the table for the Trump campaign. So like, you know, as, as I said to a reporter the other day, um, uh, Trump's campaign manager, Bill Stepien, had this bullshit analysis of, you know, how much money Trump traveling around is worth. And he's like, it's $40 million a week or something, which is Maybe true, but like if you're buying negative ads against yourself through local news coverage, when you say coronavirus affects almost nobody, like are you winning or losing? My guess is you're losing. All right. Before I let you all go, we have one listener question this week from Eric Liu, who writes, 
thank you for all the work you've done. I was wondering if you can talk about how Trump's new SCOTUS nominee will impact the election. My fear is that Trump will weaponize Barr and the conservative majority to invalidate the results after the election. Could you also talk about how to prepare for it? And I know we've talked about this a little bit, but what would you say to Eric? Reed, do you want to take that one? Sure. So let me take a little bit different tack on on Eric's question about how the the, the Supreme Court thing sure. plays out, which is they're not going to get more COVID relief done this year. They'll be they'll have to squeak through a continuing resolution on the budget. I don't know the dates of what when these things run out, but other legislative business is now going to come to a screeching halt, and so there are going to be tens of millions of Americans who, um, you know. The, the, this is the last of the water coming out of the hose after the spigot's been turned off. And, and Republicans in the, in the White House are basically saying, eh, you're on your own. I got my justice. <laughs> um, and then as far as preparing is concerned, again, I think making sure that everyone you know uh, is voting, uh, that you're voting, that you understand if you're voting by mail. If you live in Pennsylvania, put the security envelope yeah. around your yeah. ballot. Yeah. Um, all of these things. And then I think, you know, I think I've said this on the podcast before, and I really mean it this time, which is if you go to the web, go to the internet, yep. look up who your legislator is, your state senator is, and call them and say, hey, I heard this in the news. I'm watching you. Yes. We're all watching you. Yes. Don't even think about it. And if we do that several million times, my guess is a lot of these guys will start to retreat. Because here's the thing we know about members of Congress and any legislator, they hate getting phone calls. They hate it. Thank you to Oren, Reed, and Sarah for being on the show today. And thanks to all of you at home for listening. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.